Heavenly Father, still and quiet our hearts, and for those of us who are in this room, for those who are with us out on the pavilion, for those watching at home, and for those who will come back to this recording, I pray for your grace in these moments, hearing your word, listening to your truth, and applying it to our lives. And we pray these things in Christ's name, amen. So I'm looking at Ephesians chapter four. If you want to, if you have your copy of Scripture or have it on your phone, just open that up. Ephesians chapter four. When I told my wife Lynn that I was going to be preaching on anger this morning, she laughed. She's like, "Going to be pulling from personal experience, then, hey?" And uh, yes, I struggle with anger. I know that 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 has been surprising for some. Uh, who know me, but just remember that anger doesn't always look like the red-faced, you know, clenched fist, pounding the desk, yelling kind of thing. It it is often underneath an otherwise calm veneer, you know, seething and bubbling underneath. Uh, And I don't want you to raise your hands. Don't raise the hand of the person next to you, the person you came to church with, but how many of you are feeling angry this morning? Or the good southern word is frustration, right? I'm not angry, I'm frustrated. How many of you are feeling frustrated this morning? Or how many of you have felt anger, especially over the course of this last year and a half as we've dealt with this insane virus, right? How many of you have felt more anger over the course of the last two or four years as we've dealt with some of the greatest, I I think, political upheaval and divisiveness of the last 40 years? How many of you in the course of these things have lost friendships or friendships have changed and shifted? How many of you have had family relationships change and shift because of anger? I hate to get so heavy, so quickly here, but I I kind of just want to get down to brass tacks. There are things in this world that are deserving of our anger. So I'm not saying that anger is wrong. There's things that are deserving that are injustices, um, crises, the mistreatment of the vulnerable and the marginalized. So I'm not saying that, that Anger is always wrong or doesn't have its proper place, but if there was ever a group of people who should have the knowledge and equipping and willingness to handle the difficult, anger-inducing things of our world, it ought to be the church. And I'll just be painfully honest with you here. Some of the angriest people that I've ever met doing some of the most harmful, mean-spirited things out of their anger have been, been people belonging to a church. Now, two points of clarification. The first is what I've already said, that anger is not a bad or wrong emotion. It's not on a moral scale. If you're angry, you're not a bad person. There can and should be a proper place for our anger, and that's a sermon for another time. But the kind of anger I'm referring to today is, is the type of anger that Paul speaks about in Ephesians. It's anger that spills over its proper boundaries and leads to sin. That's the first point of clarification. The second is that Church of the Apostles, our church, 
has for me overwhelmingly been more gracious and loving and kind and good and healthy than any other church that I've worked for. And I, I believe that's a top-down thing. I attribute that not only to Bishop Neal, who I don't know if you've had a chance to meet Bishop Neal. He's one of the most gracious, loving, kind, shepherding men I've ever known. Uh, but also Father Robert and Father Mark, who are not, I'm not saying they're perfect, but they have long labored to help the people of our church, to help you live into a spirituality and a faith that is marked by emotional health. And I also attribute that to our leaders, to many of you, to vestry members, uh, former and current vestry members, to uh, Wendell and, and Father Taylor and, uh, and our Alpha and EHS leaders, uh, those of you that are here. I'm not just, I'm not saying this because I work here. I work here and worship here because I can say that. But I have to address this morning that the type of anger and behavior that Paul is talking about in Ephesians 4 is an incredible danger to the church. And I and my family have had firsthand experience and seen and felt the damage that it causes. And and I could tell you story after story about some of those things in my life. And in in sort of my first draft of the sermon, I did (laughs) write out a lot of stories. It's kind of like a train wreck, you know? We all just want to hear all the bad stuff. Um, But I cut it out because I just didn't want to distract from the real message that I hope to get across this morning, that when Paul says to put away falsehood, in, in verse 25, 425, when Paul says to put away falsehood, it is not a suggestion. There are no exceptions to this rule for us. Now, just to explain that word falsehood for a, a bit, falsehood comes from the Greek word pseudos, which is where we get the word pseudo from, right? And we, all, we know that word. It means not genuine. So here, what, what Paul is talking about, the things the thing that isn't genuine is this version of ourselves that would choose darkness over light, lying, manipulative behavior, fits of anger, bitterness, snide and hurtful comments, demeaning and degrading language, false accusations, shaming, abusive language and action, tone that is mean-spirited, And it's putting that pseudo-self to death that doesn't happen easily. And it doesn't happen easily because you and I are ingrained in a culture, some of us with family histories and pasts that lead to this, environments that set us in this default mode of divisiveness and destructive sin, of this pseudo-self living, falsehood. And Paul's exhortation to the church is that we allow the Holy Spirit to to set our lives on fire and burn away all that is false so that the real self, the God-made, God-breathed self is what shines through. Now, Paul is deeply concerned for the unity and integrity of the church he's writing to in Ephesus. And if you're familiar with his letter to the Ephesians, uh, you'll notice that he's addressing matters of the heart. 
He doesn't get into the specifics of exactly what, what it is that's going on around them and kind of attacking that, right? He's, he gives very little attention to these circumstances and he gives much more attention and instruction to the ways in which these early Christians respond to what's around them. And not only to what they respond to, but how they respond to, how they respond. Lynn and I um, often find ourselves doing this with, with our kids. One will get offended by another one, right? And it's often rightly so. It's, it's a justified offense. But what happens, those of you that are parents, what does the, what does the one that is, was offended do? They, in turn, offend the other one. And so we've, then we end up with just kind of this house of chaos for a moment, and that's what Paul is trying to address with these Christians in Ephesus. He's trying to clearly articulate. He says, I urge you. Another translation for that is beg. I beg you. He's pleading for them. Lead a life that's worthy of your calling. So what, does, what does he mean there? Lead a life that's worthy of your calling. Everyone been watching the Olympics I assume most of us in here have, right? Um, and and in, in watching these incredible athletes, you could say that, that given the combination of upbringing and um, genetics and access to resources and talent, that many of these Olympic athletes have a calling to their sport, right? They are aligned in such a way that they not only perform but they perform and compete at the highest level. Are you all with me? With that in mind, so what, what would you say? Let's just say, let's take Caleb Dressel. Caleb is the U.S. Olympic swimmer. He walks away from Tokyo with five gold medals, 24 years old, right? I think it's safe to assume that he's gonna return 2024 to Paris. Um, what if Caleb just started, he's like, you know what? hit the snooze button, sleep in every morning, all the way till noon, you know, just sleep right through breakfast. And then wakes up, hits up McDonald's, your fried fast food. After McDonald's, feel, feeling a little sleepy from all the carbs goes and sits down on the sofa and plays some video games. And then that's just his life. That would be insane, wouldn't it? I mean, that would be career ending, really. There's absolutely no way that he could remain in the shape that he's in, much less stay competitive in his sport and field if he does those things. How much more then should we, being fully equipped by the Holy Spirit to do the work of God in this world, also continue to practice the things of our faith, to practice the things that Jesus set for us as an example, to lead a life worthy of our calling by God? I mentioned that I, I struggle with anger um, less and less by the, the Spirit's help as time goes on. And y'all, I'm not, it's not like I'm, I'm not like kicking dogs, you know? I'm not getting in bar fights on the weekend. But it's, it's, it's just something that I'm working at. Um, it's taking work, it's taking diligence and kind of just this holy obedience, this movement forward for me to emotional health. Um, it takes... Lynn calling me out when, not in a shaming way, but when I'm, when I'm off base, 
when I need to be brought back to center, like, hey, you know what? Your tone is not good. The way that you talk to the kids is not good. It takes self-awareness. It takes honesty with myself that my anger, though often proper and right and justified within boundaries, can so easily spill out and hurt and harm others. It takes counseling. And y'all, counseling, to go to counseling, I try to say this as often as I can because I think it's so important. Counseling doesn't mean that you're broken. It's like, a, it's like an oil change, right, to keep you going. And I, I've done regular counseling. I have someone that I can sit with, who sits with me, to help me do the hard and oftentimes painful work of digging underneath my anger. Because here's the thing about anger. It's often the surface emotion underneath are things like sadness, grief, um, fear, regret, dealing with past hurts. Dealing with my anger takes prayer. It takes, you know, we heard from Father Robert last week, it takes belief, active belief and faith in the word of God that he will work through his spirit in me to bring me to health. And particularly for me, I, I have to work, it, it doesn't come naturally, I have to work to fill in the gaps of what I don't know with trust over suspicion. And I, I took those words from Andy Stanley, he's the, the pastor of North Point Church in Atlanta, and he explains that there are, there, there are these unexplainable gaps between what we expect people to do and what they actually do. And we, we all fill in those gaps with something. What are you filling in those gaps with? Is it trust or is it suspicion? Suspicion says that the person cut you off in traffic because they had it out for you and you looked like somebody that they needed to cut off, right? <laughs> trust says that they, like you, had a hard and draining day and they're thinking about other things and they've got other things on their mind and they, they probably just didn't see you. After I, I was working on this um, late last last night, and um, I was here at the church, and then I kind of kind of put it at an end, and I pulled out, going down the road. There was a little bit of traffic, and literally had someone cut me off. I was like, "God, you funny." Trust or suspicion. I have to work on that, and one of the big things I have to work. I, I realize this is becoming like a big counseling session for me, so. Appreciate the the free, the free counseling here. I, but I hope that my openness and my honesty is helpful. One of the big things that I have to work on is not just seeing that I've done harm to someone in my anger, but it's asking for forgiveness. You know, I would love. All, there would almost be nothing I'd love more than for my children to grow up. And to be able to, to tell people how wonderful and kind and gentle and loving and gracious their dad was. I would love that. And maybe they will. That'd be awesome. But I know that I'm not always those things. And I know that I, I haven't always treated them that way. So I hope that they can grow up and at least, at least tell people, you know what, dad had his difficult moments but he always came back to me and he apologized and said he was sorry and he meant it. Forgiveness. 
I think that Paul is pretty clear in Ephesians of what he's asking and expecting of the church. So I, I won't read it to you. I encourage you to mark, to highlight chapter four and into, into chapter five, those first three verses. And come back to it. Come back to it in study and come back to it in prayer because they are essential not only for our own emotional health and spirituality, not only for our own marriages and parenting and relationships and friendships, but for our witness to the world in being imitators of Jesus everywhere we go. If, if you've got it open, look there at verse five, at chapter five, verse two. What does he say? As Paul is ending this section, he's finishing his teaching on this. He says, therefore, meaning in light of all of this that I've just said, be imitators of God and walk in love as Christ loved us. How did he love us? He yelled and screamed and pointed fingers. No. How did Christ love us? He gave himself up as an offering and a sacrifice. Angry, unforgiving, lying, vengeful people cannot fulfill the mission of God, much less inherit the kingdom. But according to he who has formed us, it is the poor in spirit. It's, the, it's those who mourn. It's the meek. It's those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, the persecuted. Those are the ones who are blessed, right? Those are the ones who will know and receive and live in the fullness of God's kingdom. In another one of his letters, Paul said, and this is my, this is my translation, say, but Paul said, if I get everything right, you know, if I get all knowledge right, if, if I say all of the right things, if, if I know all the right people, all the right acts of service, my belief, if I do all of those things right, but I don't have love, then what does he say? I've gained nothing Nowhere in the Bible have I read that they will know we are Christians by our theological nuance. Immersion or sprinkle, right? Wafer or Hawaiian bread, though we all know Hawaiian bread tastes much better. Calvinist or Arminian? King James Version or ESV? Nowhere have I seen that they will know we are Christians because the choir members all wear long pants and not shorts. May or may not be speaking from personal experience there. I haven't seen that they'll know we're Christians because of our political alignment. And I, I know that's a hard one. But I'm here to tell you, I haven't found it in Scripture. But what I have found, I'll share with you, is that Jesus called tax collectors to follow him tax collectors, the great betrayers of the Jewish people, of their own people. He befriended prostitutes. He performed healings that directly benefited and helped Roman officials. I haven't found that they'll know we're Christians by the rallies or protests that we attend, by the posts we share on Facebook, the accounts we follow on Instagram, the emails we forward, the bumper stickers we slap on our cars, or the t-shirts we wear, the slogans we say, or the flags we fly. Haven't found it. 
But I have found this. John 13, Jesus told his disciples, his disciples, a group of people with significant differences of opinion. Jesus said to them, I'm giving you a new commandment. Love one another just as I have loved you. By doing this, all people will know that you're mine if you'll love one another. I urge you, Paul said, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, in love. Not in socioeconomic, political, theological circles, bearing with one another in love. Eager, he says, to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. What I wanna do before we move on to communion is, is give you some questions to reflect on and consider. By the way, the peace um, that we take time to do, you know, peace be with you. And um, I thought that was weird when I first came to, to church. I'll be honest with you. I was like, is it the 60s? You know, is it peace? But um, it's actually rooted in scripture. There's, there's something very important, very significant about what we do during this time of peace. Um, the act of passing the peace is grounded in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount where he teaches that if there is an issue between you and another brother or another sister, you need to go reconcile. You need to go work that out before you approach the altar. And so part of what we do when we're passing the peace is we are opening up opportunity to forgive to love, to reconcile with one another before we come to this table of ultimate reconciliation, right? Now, that's, that's getting into another topic of reconciliation and peacemaking and conflict resolution, but I just wanted to bring that point up because of the importance of how we love one another is even emphasized and ingrained in our liturgy every single week. Don't miss it. So before we move on to communion, here are some questions that might help us to begin to consider where and, and with whom we need to be reconciled. And I've, 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 these aren't my questions, right? I've taken them, formed them out of Paul's teaching here in Ephesians 4. So I'm gonna try to slowly go through them here for a moment. Have I spoken what is true to others and to myself? Have I allowed my anger to control my thoughts and actions in ways that harm others and or myself? Have I taken something from another what is not mine to take? Have I spoken words that are damaging and hurtful? Have I intentionally ignored the Holy Spirit's guidance in any areas of my life? Have I allowed bitterness to fester? Have I allowed indignant feelings to fester? Have I been unreasonably or uncontrollably angry at times? 
Have I used harsh tone or even yelled in my anger? Have I spoken ill of someone without their knowing? Have I intentionally sought the harm of someone else? In another one of his letters, Paul calls us ambassadors for Christ. And I think it stands to follow that if we, the people, are ambassadors, then the places that we gather, especially our churches, ought to be the places where heaven and earth are closest together, where people from the world, people, anyone can come and experience a a taste of what it means to live in the overwhelming love of God and his church. Paul is, in this letter, he's shepherding the church to health and establishing a vision that I think is relevant and necessary for us today that, that our church, our churches, should be places of gathering with people that you trust and you deeply love. We're not gonna agree on everything, and that's okay. Of course we wouldn't all agree on everything, but at the very least, and yet in a most powerful way, we would be people with whom there is a common, a common peace and a common hope. One Lord, one faith, one baptism one God and Father of all, who is in all and through all. May we be willing to do the work, this deep emotional, spiritual work within ourselves and the relational work with those around us so that Christ can can be proclaimed and that hearts around us can be reclaimed and so our church can be sustained. In the name of of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.